episode of the Higher Ed Shift, we have a financial aid takeover with Carlo and Chris out of town. I got a chance to sit down with Daniel Barkowitz, the Vice President of Financial Aid and Veterans Affairs at Valencia College. Daniel and I take a little walk down memory lane and talk about how we both found ourselves in financial aid and the kind of changes we've seen over the last 30 years in the profession. We also dedicated some time to talking about the future of the aid industry and what to look for in the coming year. Spoiler alert. Daniel offered up a warning about the coming year that left me speechless. I encourage you to follow and connect with Daniel on social media. We'll make sure to put his information in the show notes, but he can also be found on Twitter at Barkowitz, B-A-R-K-O-W-I-T-Z. I hope you enjoy the conversation with Daniel as much as I did. Hello, and welcome back to the Higher Ed Shift. My name is Amy Glynn, and I'm glad you joined us again today. As October approaches, many in enrollment in financial aid are closing out their current cycles and moving to a new one, or as I like to think about it, moving into the new year. It is the beginning of a new recruitment cycle for enrollment professionals. For financial aid offices, a new FAFSA and student financing cycle opens. With the new year theme in mind, I thought we could do a traditional New Year's thing and reflect on the years gone by celebrate what's been accomplished, talk about resolutions for the new year, and make some predictions about the coming year. Since Chris and Carlo are both off at NACAC this week, um, I decided to have a special guest join me from the financial aid world because what is more fun than talking to financial aid people? So Daniel Barkowitz um, is going to celebrate the new year with me. Daniel is the Assistant Vice President of Financial Aid and Veterans Affairs at Valencia College in Orlando, Florida. Thanks for joining me, Daniel. Thanks, Amy. It's a pleasure to be with you. I'm a longtime listener uh, and first-time uh, podcast participant, so it's great to be on the podcast with you today. Inaugural episode nine will all be yours. That's awesome. <laughs> um, so for, for anybody who may not be familiar with, with you and your background, can you give, your, can you give a quick introduction to, to who you are? Sure. So as you said, I'm the Assistant Vice President of Financial Aid at Valencia College, and it's a position I've held at Valencia for about four years. I have about 30 plus years, about 33 years to be precise, of experience in the financial aid world. And I've worked on what I like to say multiple sides of the fence. So I've worked as a, uh, as a financial aid practitioner. I've worked on a student lending, parent lending side. I've worked on the servicing side. And I've worked as a technical consultant as well doing system implementation. So done a lot of work around the financial aid and student financing uh, space. It's too bad Chris isn't here because he's a big believer in that everybody that works at, at our organization should be full stack. Um, and it sounds like you just, you just defined that completely in the age of financial aid. And so the older we get, you know, the more we start to reflect on on what's happened and how we got to this point in our life. And that kind of happens with, with a new year. How did you find yourself working in the financial aid office? So that's an interesting story. Uh, I was a freshman in college. And I remember in my freshman year, I worked actually at the bookstore and hated the job. No offense to my bookstore colleagues, but stacking shelves was just not something I loved doing every week. Um, and so I, I was trying to find a job that would keep me in Boston for the summer. I was, I was a st student in Boston, but home was South Carolina. 
And so I went to the Career Center, and back in those days, it was a a big notebook, chock full of three-hole-punched pieces of paper with job descriptions. And I started flipping through them, looking for a job that I thought I could do that summer. And I found this job at at a place called Night Tuition Payment Plans, doing what was called an assistant account manager, uh, doing computer processing, data entry, folder creation. And so I thought, well, you know, maybe that would work. And so I submitted a resume, had an interview, and was lucky enough to get hired that first summer. And that sort of opened the door for me to this profession. And, you know, again, my first summer, I worked as as an assistant account manager, came back to them for a second summer after my sophomore year in college. They liked what they saw in in young me, I guess. And they offered me a (laughs) full-time job after my sophomore year. And I started working as an account manager and was there with them for two years doing account management for parent loan repayment and origination and made contacts with a lot of financial aid offices through, throughout the state of Massachusetts, yeah. only around the country. And um, at the end of that two years, when I graduated with my undergraduate degree, I took a job as a financial aid officer at one of the colleges that I had uh, forged connections with. So it was a, you know, I, it, I hear often from my colleagues, and maybe you have a similar story, Amy, that, you know, it's work study or something akin to that, that draws people into the office. Uh, yeah. What was your, what was your uh, introduction story. Is it similar? So I'll be honest, you're right. We hear two things, right? Either students got into, or not students, people got into financial aid through work study or by accident. Um, I tend to be a little bit more of the by accident. So when I graduated, I, I left school with a degree in English secondary education. Um, and paying for school was definitely not something that was easy for me. So I, at the point where I graduated, I'll be honest, I wasn't really sure that I wanted to teach. And I also could not afford to get licensed to teach in the state of New York after graduation. I just didn't have the money to pay the the testing fees and the licensing fees. And so I took a job in administrative work for like a year and a half. It was an employee assistance program. So um, a, a mental health organization uh, loved the people I was helping, hated the company I was working at. And so started to, to look for opportunities. And I just, I came across this ad for a financial aid counselor. And with the struggles I had had paying for school, but loving education, the, the fact that I could be in an education environment and could help people figure out how they were going to be able to make it through college um, and be able to afford it was something that just really intrigued me. And so I applied and got super lucky that the director of financial aid saw something in me, gave me an opportunity. And, you know, the rest is the rest is kind of history. Um, <laughs> so very grateful to her and the mentorship that that she gave me because it has definitely I've never left. You know, so both of us have been in in the industry for for a while. Um me not quite as long as you, but as you look back over the years, the the last year has probably been um, the most challenging for so many of us. But when you look back, what's the the greatest change for the positive that you've seen in the financial aid industry? So I would say there are two. Um, one of them carries a negative risk, uh, but let's talk about let's talk about that one first. So the- <laughs> 
That to me is the advent of technology and the mm. use of technology in, in, in the creation of AIDS. So, you know, I've worked long enough in the field that now I'm, I, I hate to say this, I, you know, I'm an oldie in the, in the profession. I never thought I'd get there, but here I am, right? Yep. So I remember the days when, uh, but I remember the days when, and some of your listeners are going to laugh at this and think this is made up, but I remember the days when to pay a Pell Grant, you used to have to require a student to bring in a paper SAR you would bubble the back of the paper SAR, collect all of those forms. You'd bubble it with how much their EFC was, how much the Pell Grant was, what their enrollment status was. You'd collect the paper copies of all those paper SARs. You'd make sure the student signed it. You would send it off to the central processor who would then send you a check for that amount. Lucky if you got an EFT. And then you would wind up dispersing it on your side based on that paper roster and the paper SARS. So wow. when, I started, when I started in financial aid in uh, 1991, that was how we paid Pell Grant. There was no ICER. There was a, you know, a paper delivery of your output document. And so the whole idea of, you know, this is even before FAFSA was there. We were still using the old FAF form, um, at least in the college I was working at. So, you know, the whole idea that um, we've moved to such a technological assumption where everyone's doing things online, everyone's doing them immediately, your systems yeah. are built that way. It's changed the skills that I think you need to be successful in the industry. And it's also been a net positive. Um, we can, at Valencia, we, we serve upwards of, in terms of enrollment, upwards of 64,000 students a year. There's no way we could do that with the staff we have if everything were paper. I think there is a risk to that. And here's the, here's the negative risk, which is you don't want to overly rely on technology. Where it allows more interaction with students, that's great. If it, if it facilitates personal interaction, mm -hmm. if the technology gets the business of financial aid out of the way and allows you to do the counseling part of financial aid, that's terrific. Um, but that's, I think that's the, the risk that comes with that positive change. It's so funny that you picked technology as your number one thing, because as a student who filled out paper college admissions applications and a paper FAFSA, I was going to say technology as well, because I remember being really lost in the journey about how I was supposed to figure out what I could afford and what I couldn't afford and knowing that my parents didn't have money to, to help offset that cost, it was always, always a stress. Um, and I was always one of those inevitable students that was like coming down to the deadline of, oh crap, am I going to be able to register next semester? Like, can I go in and find that little old lady? Cause she was a little old lady in financial aid and cry just right so that she can find enough money so that I can register. Um, but then when I moved into the aid office, I think there was a shift, like as I was finishing school and by the time I became an aid officer, because technology had started to come in place, like my students didn't have to come sign over their, um, their FFEL loan check to me, like I did when I was in school. So it's that technology that I agree. And to, to your point, there, there is a risk because when, when the technology is not in place and we need to use humans, there's a 
deep need because of the compliance and the complexity to have people who are a little bit more, I refer to them as accountants. They're a little bit more accountant-based. They're they're checking boxes. They're making sure everything is in its place, that all of the regulations are being met. Um, But now we're shifting away from those individuals as financial aid professionals to what I like to think of as financial advisors. I'll say a word about that. I mean, that that speaks to the second thing that I was going to say, which is the, the other positive change that I've seen in financial aid is a real focus on um, student empowerment and the student voice. Yes. And the idea that students are a partner, not a not a customer and a and a and a, a widget, right? So mm-hmm. you know, I remember when I started in aid, it was I have a stack of 150 files to get through. I never really thought of the file as a student and the family. I just thought of it as a file. And I think that's the other positive change is we're now, you know, in an era where we're talking appropriately so about equity and inclusion and, you know, making sure that we bring down barriers. Um, it's important to have the student voice as part of this conversation. And so to enable that, and I think that's, you know, that that's an, another net positive change that's come about as a result. And that speaks to your idea of financial aid officers, I think, becoming much more uh, advisors than, you know, than a, an accountant type type role. We like to refer to them at Campus Logic as student financial success champions because they're a champion of the student through the financing journey. And I think it also helps to highlight a group of people who are maybe a little bit undervalued in the educational environment for for what they're really doing to champion what is best for students, which is not always easy. So over those years, we've probably both observed some changes or some evolutions that maybe are a little bit more detrimental, um, either to to the industry, to the funding process, but more importantly, to students. What's what's one mistake we've made? I don't know, either along the journey or even last year that we need that we need to learn from and adjust. So to me, the issue is doing enough to do what's required, but not doing too much. So, mm-hmm. and I, I know we'll, you know, we can get into the conversation about compliance and sort of where that where that where that um, knife's edge sits. Yeah. But you know, my concern often, and I express this with my staff, is let's only do what's required. Let's not go hunting. Mm-hmm. So. You know, if it's required, we do it. And I have no qualms about that. If it's, you know, if, if it's required to collect a tax return, let's collect the tax return. But if it's not, let's not, you know, let's not um, satisfy period interest unless we have a conflicting information, unless there's a requirement in front of us, let's not put students through the ringer. I, I actually wrestle with um, the idea that part of my job is to make students relive their trauma. And I, you know, I really struggle with that part. So, so when students come to me with a dependency override request or a professional judgment request, the balance here is, you know, I need to collect enough information to make the case for an auditor. Yep. And I start out the conversation with the student by saying, I know this is asking you to revisit things that are painful for you. And I need you to be fully disclosing to me because I need to build the case for you. Yeah. And I, I want to help you in that regard, but I also I also recognize the you know the recurrent trauma by revisiting that trauma. And I think you know it, it's important for us to um, as aid officers understand that and help students through that. 
because uh, I think that can be a detriment to student success. You know, we're also we're also trying to change our language um, from language of penalty to language of aspiration. So, you know, if you have if you've been placed on SAP suspension, um, you must appeal turns into students who have been successful have done the following things to you know resolve their SAP suspension. That kind of growth mindset language is really also critical, I think, in this in in that development. Yeah, I, I think that those are oh, those are such great points, and I don't even know where to start. I'm probably going to forget something, um, but but I love that idea. We have been we've been conditioned as aid professionals around a punitive mindset because for some reason we've we've only thought of saying if you don't do X, you're not going to get your Pell Grant, right? And it, it's more of of a punitive in saying if you do X we can distribute your Pell Grant, right? So that that idea of positive intent, positive mindset and being able to make the shift. Um, and because I think one of the one of the biggest things is I have seen over and over again, the negative impact of the punitive nature of our own system that it's had on my colleagues and, and my professionals. And, and so why would I want to continue to enable and and keep that type of a system going forward into a new generation. It it just doesn't, it's one of the things that we can very simply and easily change uh, for for our student body. You know, I I talk to my colleagues in the registrar space uh, or my colleagues on the academic side and they go through accreditation. Um, We go through audit and the mindset is so different, right? In accreditation, it's, Let's find a benchmark and let's try to work to improve that benchmark. In audit, it's let's find the mistake you made and penalize you for the mistake you made. Not yeah. how do we do better, right? How do we improve? How do we find a baseline and do better the next year? So I think part of that is the frame that we operate in because we're so highly regulated and audited. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of my job is to push back a little bit to that frame and to say, that's all well and good for the audit. But for purposes of a day-to-day interaction, we can't live and die by the audit. I mean, we have to make sure we've we've built all the cases we need to build for the audit. But that yeah. doesn't mean that we have to pass that um, that frame along in our in our conversations with students and families and each other. I think that's that's really important. And and you know, even to support that a little bit more, I I got into a conversation on social media because someone was suggesting that there should be the ability to ask questions of the Department of Education through anonymity. They didn't want to relieve who who they were. And I pushed back a little and said, you know, the Department of Education is supposed to be a good partner. There are ways to ask your questions and not say, hey, I dispersed aid to student X who did A, B, and C. Instead, to be able to say, can an institution disperse aid in this situation? And I got a I got a ton of flack from people who who were talking about the punitive nature of the system. And for me, the biggest thing is recognizing it, but doing something to change it and change the mindset instead of continuing to perpetuate the mindset that we've had because of how it limits um, how how it limits our ability even both to do our jobs well, to be happy, um, to impact student lives, but 
also how, how it seeps into our interactions with all other areas of the campus. If that's my continual mindset, am I someone who can push the envelope and be innovative? Am I someone who can partner with the enrollment team, um, with the advancement team, with the marketing team, and really be able to differentiate between that conversation with that government official um, and, and how to position my organization? The people in our industry who shift like that are the people who are going to see opportunities and success and greater influence on their campus. I agree. I agree. The other thing that you said that I think is is really important for for us to remember is we are dealing with so many sensitive situations, um, and and this is not limited to our students. To your point, who have had trauma that are going through dependency overrides, that are doing even um, satisfactory academic progress appeals, because we know those can happen for mental health issues. They can happen for physical health issues. I've I've had students who suffered from domestic violence that impacted their ability to be successful academically. And, and I do think that we as an industry, we need more guidance on how to have those conversations in a really sensitive way and how to set our systems up in a way that they invite openness and a feeling of, of safety and security in sharing them it, instead of re-victimizing individuals who are in those scenarios. But it extends even into our into the, the financial aid process all, of, all the way around. We have so many students who are first generation and who are low income, where conversations about economics, about family income, about affordability, maybe things that aren't had in in a public way. And so they just don't, they don't know how to address the topic even with their parents. It's it's kind of uncomfortable going to your mom and dad and being like, how much money do you make? Right. Right. For many families, it could be the first time that that the families even had a conversation around income, around, you know, what what's the specific number. Um, and you know, and that becomes difficult. Not to mention the resistance to giving up that information somehow in the application process. The sense that that privacy becomes you know less less available, right? Yeah. And, you know, the other piece that, that I always I think about as well is we 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 have to train our financial aid officers to remember that the analysis we do is not necessarily a full picture of every source of income. A family has. So, you know, when we verify, if we verify, this year being obviously the exception, but when we verify, you know, the FAFSA doesn't ask for every single form of income a family receives. So all we're doing is, is collecting the information that FAFSA has, just like, by the way, FAFSA doesn't ask for every asset. So, you know, it, it is a, a modified picture. Um, and I think there needs to be an understanding of that. And that creates, that assumes a level of financial awareness that many families may not even have. There may be a sense that somehow I'm just opening up my my family for analysis. um, And that really isn't the case. No, if they want to be financially analyzed, they should go fill out a CSS profile. And then then they will understand what forensic accounting looks like a little bit better. (laughs) So Yeah, and I spent lots of years on the CSS profile side. So we could talk about that too, absolutely. Yeah. 
All right. So it's the new year. New FAFSA is opening up. I am not personally a big fan of resolutions. I believe that we should always strive to have continual improvement and not hold hold it to the new year. But along that vein, if you had to make one resolution for the new aid year, uh, what what would it be? What are you going to focus on? So for me this year, it's about data-driven decisions. So there's so much data that we collect. There's so much data we have access to. And I know in some of my previous institutional roles, uh, I was just always running on a treadmill and never having a chance to go back and actually do the analysis. It was always about, I've got to meet this benchmark. I've got to meet this threshold. I've got to package this number of students and do this number of verification um, you know, verification reviews and this number of SAP appeals. And part of my, my goal is, and I've started here, but I want to take more time to actually do the analysis of the data because my gut tells me X, but I want to make sure that, that the data agrees with my gut. Um, and that as I make decisions for us moving forward, I want to do more of a deep dive into those data. Yeah, I think that that is, is really important. We should always follow our gut, but it should always lead us to, to that data to be able to trust it, but verify what, what it's telling us and make sure we're, we're making good choices. For me, I want to focus on this idea of student financial success. And I wanted to start to become a national priority for, for our colleges and universities. And so I'll share with people that student financial success, I feel, is the future of financial aid, where attention is paid and investments start to get made to address the number one barrier to college enrollment, retention, and completion. And that's paying for college. And so as, as a simple measure for me, we should strive to eliminate debt with no degree which is really a clear indicator that students have not achieved success through their college investment. And so this shift to student financial success should require, it does require a dedication to cutting through the current system's complexity by providing a highly personalized experience to ensure that we're unlocking the dollars that students need to pay for school. So for me, that's my resolution. Um, I'm not going to call it a resolution. I'm going to call it a goal for the new aid year is, is to get people to really prioritize and shift the mindset to what I consider the financial aid of the future, which is student financial success. You should get like twinkling music, like there's fairy dust glittering down around my head. <laughs> well, I'm sure we can add that sound effect in post-production. Yeah, I'm going to talk to my engineer about that. <laughs> That's right. But, but, uh, but I can imagine that that, you know, that requires a different competency set, right? So it's not so much necessarily about only knowing the mechanics of how to do an RTT4 or how to complete a verification or needs analysis, but it's also about understanding sort of how a student intersects financially with the world. There's a financial literacy component, but there's, a, there's, a, there's an elevation of socioeconomic status and class into the conversation about identity. Um, that's a passion of mine too, Amy, which is that you know in, in many of our campuses, we have great focus on um, diversity, on equity, and on inclusion, but we often don't remember that one of the avenues to discuss diversity and inclusion and equity is socioeconomic status. Mm -hmm. And so how do we elevate class 
into the conversation um, so that, you know, we make sure that students are welcome regardless of their economic background and find spaces that reflect them and spaces that give them an opportunity for belonging and for growth, because that, you know, that, that college without degree is going to be more often reflected for students who don't find a place for themselves in our educational spaces. So again, your call reminds me that we really need to build a different competency set uh, for our financial aid officer of the future. And I think you are 100% right. And, and the thing that I kind of left out in my description there, right, is that idea of cutting through complexity and, and charting these personalized experiences is how we engage with a more diversified student body because of the unique needs of our different cohorts and, and groups of students, that it's the only way to be able to address some of um, the diversity, equity, inclusion, access is- and access issues is through a highly personalized engagement experience with those students. And as much as an R2T4 is really, really important, and I know everybody just loves to do them, the human component is something, the student component, the student experience has ultimately been neglected through the financing journey. And and I think that, you know, we've we've got data now to show financing is the number one barrier to enrollment and completion. And the people who can be the champion and the savior of that are in our offices. And I will say, and I've shared this with you before, uh, I think as part of that, you know, the other piece is that our colleges are moving from the from the element of in loco parentis, right? So again, remember the Latin um, translates to in lieu of parents, right? Or, you know, in in place of parents. So colleges for generations have acted as the sort of parent for students in that environment. My argument is we're now moving to in loco communitas. Um, We're we're no longer parents, we are the community. So that means, you know, um, uh, food assistance, um, rental assistance or housing assistance, mental health services, and, you know, all kinds of wraparound services in which I see the demand for those services expanding uh, far beyond where they were in the past, probably because they were still needed. We just weren't providing them. We were ignoring that need. So I think as part of that, you know, student financial success piece, there's also a need to think about what role do we have to play in a whole student experience as a college, not simply the, let me help you pay for it. You know, uh, the, the, Anthony Abraham Jack does a terrific job in the book, The Privileged Poor. I don't know if you've read it or not, but it's a great book. And one of the things he talks about with interviews with students is, you know, students experience during periods of non-enrollment. Uh, we often don't think about that being our responsibility. We get them to campus, And while they're enrolled with us, we provide for them. But when enrollment ends on breaks or spring break or winter break, not my problem. We wash our hands of it. But from a student experience perspective, it's absolutely the college's issue, right? Because where else are they going to turn? We are their community. Yeah. I mean, I can can tell you personally, you know, long time ago when I was in school, there, there were times where the campus would close where I wasn't in a position where I could go home. And so was, was very lucky to have the support of my then 
my husband now, my my fiance at the time, and um, and his family, and was able to to make that work. But but you're right. We need to. We are well beyond the time when I was in college where we didn't talk about these things, and we left students to figure it out on their own and to stay or leave. Um, but the reality is, we have the ability to fix these problems, to help provide resources, and to build that that community that you're talking about. And the and and with it comes an affinity for your for your institution. So not are you not only are you doing social good, not only are you fulfilling your mission as as a college or university, but you're building affinity and trust with your students um, who who want to be there. Absolutely. And you contribute to their ongoing life, life altering success, right? That's the issue. Um, and that's what our mission is. Yeah. I love it. Oh my gosh. This has been so amazing. So one last question. It's like the million dollar question. What do you predict is going to happen in the year to come in financial aid? So are we going to circle back in the year and have another conversation to see if we made, if we predicted it well? Totally we are. Oh, good. Good. So I, I am both excited and nervous for the coming year. I think that given where we are in the pandemic and given what's what the massive influx of federal dollars and relief that's been granted, I think we've created an environment that is going to crash. And, and I'm interested to see sort of how, and we're thinking about this now, how do we prepare ourselves and our students for the, the reality that's coming? When all of these pandemic dollars are gone, when the relief is gone, what do we do to help students prepare for that reality? So, so if, I, if I were to spin it negatively, I would say we have challenges ahead. If I were to spin it positively, I would say we have great opportunity to think about creating avenues of student financial success, to borrow language you've shared. And this is the clarion call. This point is the wake-up call to say we can't put it off. Because in a year, our students are going to be coming to us looking for solutions that yeah. we don't have today. And so I really would predict that in the coming year, we're going to need to refocus our energy on providing those pathways and providing opportunities for students to become more financially savvy about their own education and their own journey and looking for creative ways to help find funding for students and help them be conscious consumers as they move through the environment. I feel like you just blew my mind with something at the very end of our interview. And I'm actually a little, I'm a little annoyed at you right now. So the, the vacuum that is going to be created, I will be honest, I hadn't thought about the, the financial vacuum that gets created um, both from, from an institutional investment in some of the some of the technology and resources that they've had for students, but even around what we've what we've created in expectations for students about emergency grant assistance. Like I know Valencia got a fairly generous portion of emergency dollars. How do you like ballpark? How much of an influx in the student grant portions? did you guys have over the last 18 months? So uh, it's been, uh, and I will include what we're predicting to spend for fall and spring. 
So altogether, it's been about $140 million. So that's huge, right? That is twice the amount of Pell in a single year that we receive. So if I think about you know, doubling Pell and, you know, and, and having to administer that, and then all of a sudden that fund drying up and no longer being available, there's a lot of risk there. And so you know, that's the piece that I, I would love um, you know, to plant a seed to talk more with you about, maybe in a coming episode, uh, about you know, how do we prepare for that as a college? How do we think about that? And I'd love to, to hear you know, um, Carlo and Chris's perspective on it as well. I think there's a big risk for college. Do we really need them? Well, maybe not. I mean, but I'm just especially, saying. <laughs> especially as we also face what is coming in terms of the enrollment cliff. Right, we know that the demographics of those who are in high school, there's some shrinking classes coming, and so I think if I were to predict, you know, the next five to ten years, it's that twin con- confluence of events that's going to be a real challenge for us in in financial aid and in higher education. Man, I should have gone first. I'm not going to try and top that. I feel like that was the best best prediction ever. Thank you so much for joining me. I appreciate you being willing to to spend time and share your ideas with me and our audience. It was a real pleasure. And usually I wind up talking back to the podcast while I'm listening to it. So, you know, I appreciate the chance to actually talk with you on the podcast this time. So, Well, that transition's great because we would love to hear from listeners on what they think have been some of the the same things that we've talked about. So what have been some of the greatest positive changes that you've experienced in your career? Uh, what are your predictions for the year to come? What resolutions do you, do you have for your financial aid office or yourself professionally? We would love for you to share this episode and Daniel's insights on social media and, and with your, your friends, family, and coworkers. Follow the channel. And we look forward to seeing you again next week.